Good evening, everyone. Are you glad you're here? You look like sheep scattered without a shepherd. So good to have you this evening. Um, does anyone have a Bible tonight that does not belong to you? Somebody took my Bible this morning. It's a red Bible. Got all my notes in it. I've got a thousand dollar bill in it, too. No, that part isn't true. Uh, but no, somebody, I rested on the, on the uh, stairway there that I normally do when, I, when I'm outside. And I came back today and was gone. So I'm sure somebody must have taken it up by mistake. Uh, please, if you find it, it's the Red Bible, New American Standard, uh, updated edition. All right, we're still working on the issue or the topic of evangelism, New Testament methodology for evangelism. Our purpose is to show from the New Testament exactly how uh, God intends for us to proclaim the gospel that brings salvation to everyone. I really believe that uh, the methodology for evangelism has really diluted the message rather than really so that's our that's our, our purpose oh you had it ah, thank you thank you thanks a lot um, now take my train of thought here um, evangelism primary focus uh, of course when it comes to evangelism is proclaiming the gospel in such a way that you persuade people to come to Christ. See, that's the difference from teaching the gospel um, didactically, in other words, to instruct, and preaching the gospel evangelistically. Evangelistic sharing, preaching, proclaiming of the gospel has an intention. And that intention is to persuade people come to Christ. When we talk about teaching, uh, it has the idea of explaining, not necessarily with the idea of persuading, but simply to clarify. You understand what I'm saying? That's the difference we have to see when we talk about evangelistic uh, preaching and teaching the gospel uh, on another level. One has primarily to do with bringing people into the kingdom, into the church, the other has to do with building them up. That's the aspect of it. But I believe that the New Testament methodology for evangelism has for the most part been put aside uh, in favor of ways of persuading people, I think, uh, in the wrong way, in the wrong manner. Uh, so that's what we're helping to, hoping to clarify as we go on. But before I approach tonight's message. Let me ask you, do you have any questions or comments on what we have said so far, last Lord's Day and today? Any questions or comments concerning the message? No questions, no comments. Do you think this is an important issue? Why? Because we all need it as Christians. Right? We don't witness enough in our everyday living. And of course, that's my emphasis, that's my focus. And I really believe that if we do that, more people will be saved. And the 
desperate need for evangelistic crusades, not that they're wrong, God has used them throughout, but not be as great. Because I really believe with all my heart that the New Testament methodology of evangelism was the idea of we are each individual, so Christ-like, living such a holy lifestyle. And that's going to be our focus in the scriptures. Anything else? I agree, and you know, go to the scriptures again. The scriptures, uh, I think it was in the Philippians, not Philippians, Thessalonians, Paul was writing. He said he knew of their love. They were sharing love, but he goes on and says, but I want. That's the essence of the Christian life, demonstrating love. Uh, that's an important element. And, uh, we will be talking about what it means. To, how do we show love? God is love. How do we show God? God is love. We it is possible for us to cause to cause people to see the invisible God by the way we love one another. John brings that out in his, his epistle. That we could actually cause the unseen God to be seen by the way we love one another. It's a wonderful thing. It's a morality. You see, uh, and I didn't have the opportunity to bring this out to the Lord's Day uh, last week because, as I said, it was a difficult time. And this is an important issue that I, I left out of there. It has to do with love, demonstrating love. In the foundational stages of the, the church, when God was laying the foundation for the church through his apostles and so on, he validated the message of the gospel, the evangelistic aspect of the gospel, through signs and wonders. Physical signs and wonders. But I think that has changed. As you go through the epistles, you will see that. How is he doing that now? How is he validating the message of the gospel? If you study the gospels, you study the epistles, he's now validating it through the greatest miracle that we can ever be involved in. And that's the miracle of loving one another sacrificially. You read the scriptures, you will see that. That's the greatest miracle to the unsaved, to see God's people loving one another unconditionally, sacrificially. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's the validation of the love of God. Demonstrating that love. I hope we get back to that because I think it's so important. We overlook it so often and for other things. We become a, become a people of gimmicks. We're always looking for something new to do to win people to Christ. That boggles my mind. Why do we have to do that? It's just like teaching today. Everybody wants a book for this, pay for that. Always looking for, why don't we just go to the Bible? Simply the way only we could be effective if we use all of these things. And we direct it by what we get from the market. The popular things, the things that are 
packaged so nice. All the, you want to have a successful church? You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to do that. And who wins out? The people who have, have the most beautifully packaged products. And we've fallen for it. We've fallen for it. That's why in our men's study, we're going through a, a real good study right now, but we told the men that was, that's enough. Next time when we finish, we'll say, Brother Joe, we're going into the Word directly, and we're going to teach you how to study the Word while you go through it. So I'm just saying it's time for us, really, to get back to the book. And stop all of these little gimmicks and all of these little crutches we're using to make people think that we're Christians when we're doing these types of activities. Anyway, let me get up that soapbox for a moment. Tonight, any other questions or comments? Priscilla? Oh, yeah, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these things are not helpful, but we cannot overemphasize them or exaggerate them. That's what I'm saying. We have to use them in balance. That's my point. Right? Okay, who else? Somebody help me. Okay. Well, I think uh, when you come to the gift of evangelism, that's another big story that my, 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 my understanding of evangelism is quite different than we feel. For instance, how many evangelists do you read about in the Bible? One. Only one. One evangelist. Now, normally when you approach Bible study, if you want to learn about something the Bible teaches, you study what the Bible has to say about it, right? So you go, if you want to study about evangelists, you go and you study the life of Philip. Now, Philip's life as an evangelist was quite unique. I mean, he could go to different places without having to hire a taxi. Isn't that right? God just took him up, boom, you know? Take him and that type of a thing. And so when you come and trying to define what an evangelist does in Scripture, you're limited. That's why we have so many versions of what an evangelist is supposed to do. You see? And when you look at Philip, you can see that Philip was used in a very special way by God. Go to a certain people. To one man in the desert. Now, take a look at Philip. Philip was in the midst of a tremendous evangelistic crusade, right? Teaching and crowds were coming to Christ, he said. The Bible tells us that. But God comes along and says, Philip, I got something else for you to do. I want you now to go to talk to one man. Not hundreds, not thousands, one man. Now, you know, probably if an angel had gone to one of our outstanding evangelist today, you know what he said? No, man, that's for one of the counselors. My job is to preach to the masses. You see what I'm saying? But God took this evangelist, who was preaching to the masses, to talk to one man. You see? How I see it in the Bible, the gift of evangelism in the church has more to do with people who would teach the people of God how to win people to Jesus Christ rather than doing the actual work of preaching. That's my understanding of what an evangelist is. 
Look at the context. The gift is only mentioned in Ephesians 4. And in Ephesians 4, it has to do with building up the body of Christ, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. You see? And how I see it, these evangelists into the church is primarily to instruct people how, how to win people to Christ. As I said, that's different from those people. Why? Because you go to the scriptures and you put onto the scriptures what you believe an evangelist is. But I'm saying when you only go to the scriptures, that's the only thing you can get. Giving people, along with the pastor, teachers, and so on, to build the Lord's people up. Alright? Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't give special gifts to people who have a love for the lost, and have a way of approaching them so they can proclaim the gospel clearly and accurately and with a passion. See, that's the part that is necessary, the passion. Sometimes you get into these moods that here's how you do it. You go, you talk to the person, and you get this little pamphlet, and you explain, and we have it down, and there's no passion. It's only rote. You understand what I'm saying? And you don't want to let that person go until you can sign the paper, you make a decision. You see? I have come to the place now when I talk to people in my office, and it just happened last week. Uh, they come in for counseling, and we talk about Christ. And he said, now here's a question. And he says, you want to receive Christ? He says, well, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I think I'd like to. He says, okay. I don't want you to do it now. I have a little booklet that I use. I do, but only after this. He said, I want you to read this because this shares the same thing I am. You read it, and if you make up your mind, if you still want to receive, you call me back and tell me you have received Christ. He said, why do I do that? See, believe it or not, some people feel intimidated when they talk to me in the office. Really. Especially if they come in for counseling or looking for help or something like that. And they might believe that the only way that I can get this help or I can continue this counseling is if I do something to please him. And I don't want anybody to receive Christ on that basis. So I say, this is between you and the Lord. It's clear. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to pray this before me. But if you really believe this is what you to do, here it is, and then you call me. I talked to this individual. They're coming in for counseling. And he wasn't married. He talked about it. He says, yes, he wants to receive Christ. So I did the same thing. He called me last night at 10.30. He said, Pastor Lee, I did it. For the reason. He says, what happened? He says, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord. I see, I feel good about that. Why? Because I didn't feel like I intimidated him him into a decision. And I believe that many times we say that we're going to do these evangelistic things, we force people into decisions they're not ready to make. And we just want to get, yeah, one more. One more. You see? And I dread that. I really dread that time. Okay. Let's go on for our message for this evening. We want to be talking tonight about God's essentials for effective evangelism. And our desire here is to equip you, members of the incredible body of Christ, to share the gospel accurately, anywhere, anytime, with anyone, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice that, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own energy. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's our text. Romans 10, 8. And this is right in the middle of a, a passage, of course, a tremendous passage of Scripture. But let's read it, and this is another one that's so often misapplied. 
What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Notice verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, how is that normally taken? How do you interpret that passage right now? If I say to you, ask you, what does that mean? How do you respond? What is the normal response to that? You've got to testify to it. I've got to open my mouth and say it. Isn't that right? You can't be saved unless you open your mouth and say it. That's how this verse is normally, is normally, is normally translated. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For... Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I've called this message tonight the essentials of evangelism. What I want to try to show from, te from the text of Scripture is what we need, what is absolutely necessary for us to explain when we're talking about the gospel. Let me give you an overview of the passage, and we'll look at it in detail. Now, if I had to give a, another name for this message, I would call it Evangelism 101, because this is the basics here. This is stuff you've got to know at the very beginning, the foundation. But let's see overview. So I'm going, to be do some, I'm going to be doing some repetition tonight because that's how you normally teach basics. You repeat again and again so you understand. In verse 13 it says, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, we must acknowledge that Jesus is God. That's what I believe this text is saying. When it says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, we must acknowledge that Jesus is God. Because that word Lord there, uh, in the context, refers to the, 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 the God of the Old Testament in context. It refers to Yahweh. So what this text is saying really is that in order for you to be saved, you must acknowledge that Jesus is God. It doesn't mean that you must acknowledge that he is Lord of your life as is taught by those who talk about lordship salvation. No, this is saying, and we're going to demonstrate that, that you must believe that Jesus is God. In the context, it talks, he quotes an Old Testament scripture about those who call upon the name of Yahweh, right? Now he's saying the same thing about Jesus. You've got to call upon Yahweh, Jesus, Jesus as God. You must believe he is God. It's impossible to be saved unless you believe that Jesus is that's a tough question. You say, hang on a minute now. How can an unsaved person believe that Jesus is God? How can he understand that? See, that's where the divine aspect of salvation comes in. You remember Peter? Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember the story? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're the prophet Isaiah. Some say and so on. Then Jesus turns around and he says, what? Who do you say that I am? Remember? And then Peter gets up and he says, what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say? 
flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father in heaven. That happens every time a person truly places faith in Christ. There's a divine revelation that comes to them, or illumination, whatever you want to call it, but there's a divine insight that comes to them that has nothing to do with the preacher. Nothing to do with the preacher at all. There's an insight that God himself gives. That's what happens when a person acknowledges that Jesus is God. He's the, he's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. That's the context of that passage. But then, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? We must believe that Jesus Christ is God. Verse 3 again. How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? You must hear about Christ. I'm, I'm going to be very logical. The same way Paul is very logical. If you, in order for you to call, you must believe. In order to believe, you must hear. You see. Verse 4. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Christ must be preached among them. In order for the message to be heard, somebody must proclaim the message. Five. How shall they preach unless they are sent? They must be preachers of Christ who are sent by God. You see, this is where a lot of us, this is a loophole for many. I ain't sent nowhere. So I ain't got no responsibility to evangelize. I ain't got no responsibility to share. I ain't sent. I ain't being sent. Oh, you can see that's not true at all. But the point is, you must be sent by God. Unfortunately, many people are out there saying they're sent, but they're not being sent by God. They might have been sent by an organization, but not necessarily by God. How do you know? Check the message. Check the lifestyle. You see, don't separate the lifestyle from the message or vice versa. Check the message. Check the lifestyle. Is the message in keeping with the whole tenor of Scripture, is the lifestyle a one that reflects the person, the image of Jesus Christ or not? must be sent by God. Verse 6 says, Just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things or good news. In other words, sharing the gospel is a beautiful thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to do. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful in the sight of God. Isn't that wonderful? It's a beautiful thing to do. When you talk about how beautiful the feet now, I ain't looking at your feet. You go five, six, or size eight, or size ten. He says, now, why? He's not talking about beautiful feet like that. It's people who go with the gospel. And when you carry that message, Jesus says, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Now, when we put it all together, we have this then. This is an overview now. We can look at it in detail. Salvation, salvation is available to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. And in context, it means that calling upon Yahweh, that calling upon Jesus as God. Calling upon Jesus as God. That's salvation. You've got to look at what does it mean to call upon him? Why should we call upon him and so on? To be saved, you must call on the only one who is not only able, but authorized to save. And that's Jesus Christ. Bottom line is this. There's only one authorized Savior. That's Jesus Christ. 
How do I know that? How do I know that? The Bible does. There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. And I'm not afraid to say that. I don't care what the Muslims think about it. I don't think what the Hindus say about it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see? That's important for us to understand. We must be convinced of that. He's the only one who is authorized to be our Savior. Let's explain this a little bit more then. To call upon the name of the Lord means to confess and acknowledge that Jesus as the God-man is the only one who is able, qualified, and authorized to save you. And then forsaking all other competing, competing claims of salvation, you cleave only to Jesus as the sole basis of your salvation. That's what it means. That you are not going to look at anything you do. You're not going to look at church membership. You're not going to look at how much you give. You're not going to look at baptism. Nothing else. All you're going to look at, Jesus Christ is God. He's the only way for me to be free from my sin and condemnation. And then you call upon him because you realize there just ain't no one else who can save. No one else. That's why when you come to it later on, we can see that faith is just a means to salvation. Faith is not salvation. We are not saved by faith. Listen to this. Hey, gentlemen, I see you laughing already. We're saved by Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument, the means, the vehicle, but faith does not save us. Jesus Christ saves us. No matter how strong your faith is, if it isn't resting in Jesus Christ, your faith is no good. You understand what I'm saying? That's why be careful how you illustrate saving faith. How many times have you heard, well, faith is like, well, see that chair? You sit in this chair, and you have faith that this chair is going to save you. That's all you've got to do to be saved. Nonsense. Nonsense. Saving faith is a gift from God. It tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's a gift. Saving faith is a gift. God gives it to us. We don't muster it up. You understand what I'm saying? This is a, this is a unique kind of faith if you want. It's something that we receive from God. When do you receive that? The moment that he reveals to you that Jesus Christ there's so many wonderful things that happen at the moment of salvation. At least 33. And if you get another version of the Bible, it might be 36. But at least 30 different things happen to you the moment you place your faith in Christ. In fact, receiving faith is one of them. Do you know that you cannot be saved until you've been saved? Hey, Brother Frankie, you say, what do I mean by that? Well, in order for us to receive the faith from God that saves, we must believe. And when we believe, we express that faith. That belief is reality through our lips. We can come back to that a little later on. 
But what I'm trying to say here, the moment of salvation is so wonderful, so awesome, so wonderful. It's important for us to understand that we become the sons of God, the children of God, then, when we are converted, when we place faith in Jesus Christ. We pass out of, out of darkness into light, then, that same time. Our sins are forgiven, when, that same time. We are adopted, when, that same time. We become citizens of heaven when? That same time. There's no more condemnation. We have passed from judgment unto life. When? At that same time. All of these things happen at the same time. That's why it's so illogical for people to teach that the person can be truly saved today and lose his salvation tomorrow. Because in order for us to lose a true salvation, we got to do and do everything that was done. Everything. This isn't illogical. Notice now, he goes on. Where did I stop? Um, nobody knew where I stopped. How shall they call upon whom they have not believed? In order to cry out to Christ to save us, we must believe in him. It is this kind of belief that moves you to cry out, Lord, save me, because you are the only one who can do it. We must hear about Christ to believe in him. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? In other words, hearing the gospel accurately is absolutely necessary if one is to believe the message of saved. And this is my point tonight. You must hear the gospel accurately. You can hear a message, but if it's not accurate, you won't be saved. You have not believed. It must be the accurate proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must hear it accurately. And I'm going to show you now what Paul himself says is the accurate uh, explanation of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. You know it quite well. This is what he says. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe it in vain. But I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Now, this is an important passage of Scripture, so we're going to go into, uh, into this piece by piece, because it's important for you to understand. Notice he says, I make known. I make known. In other words, he is explaining he is proclaiming the truth of the gospel it has to be made known see that's the problem with our witnessing many of us don't make it known you've got to make it known notice, i make known to you brethren notice now what did he make known he says i make known to you what the gospel i made known to you the gospel That's the good news. Now, how did he make this gospel known? He says, I preach to you. This word is proclaim. This word is to herald. This word is to explain. I preach to you, which also you received. There's no salvation without receiving the message that was preached. The message that was made known clearly and accurately. Notice. 
you receive, by which also you are saved. In order to be saved, you must receive the message. That's another word for faith. Place faith in the message. Notice, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. Here is the importance of accurate preaching of the gospel. Because what saves a person is holding fast to the truth as they have been proclaimed. Holding fast to the truth. Now, if you preach error and the person holds fast to it, they won't be saved. No matter how much they think they are saved, they won't be saved. You understand what I'm saying? This is important. You must preach the gospel accurately because it's holding on to the truth of the message. Saves an individual. Leads them to salvation. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Notice that it is possible to delay without profit. That's what vain means. Without profit, no advantage. It's possible for a person to hear a message and believe in vain. And it won't profit them anything at all. And I am convinced that happens again and again to many people. The gospel is saying people believe, but their belief is not accurate. You must preach it accurately. Preach to you unless you believed in vain. And notice he goes on. Notice me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Top priority. What? The message that he received from Jesus Christ. Read the book of Galatians. Paul tells how he received the message. In fact, he says when he, re when he received his gospel, he said he did not receive his gospel from any man. He didn't receive the gospel from man. He received it from Jesus Christ. That's why I, I have a message. I, 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 I title, Where Did You Get Yours? Where did you get your gospel? Is this the gospel that comes from man? Is this the gospel that comes from Christ? Paul says, I deliver to you as a first importance, top priority, that which I receive. I receive directly from God. He was preaching the word of God for what it is. The word of God and not the word of man. As the first importance, it's so important to get this. The gospel. What is it? Here is the important message that Christ died for our sins. And notice, it's not only that Christ died. He died for our sins. That's the first essential message. You see, sometimes we preach it, and that's all we preach. What do we preach? Christ died. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not Christ died. That's history. The gospel is Christ died for you. That's that's the difference. You understand what I'm saying? You cannot preach the gospel accurately unless you include substitution. died for you. He did not die for himself. He was not a martyr. He was not a model. He was a sacrifice. He died for you. Substitute. No use get him and say, Christ died for the world. Mm -mm. You've got to understand this is where the conviction comes in. Thank God. See, this is where
First importance then, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the Word of God. That is proclaimed long ago, and that's what we must preach. We must preach the Word. God elects the validation of the message, the Word of God, in Jesus. That's number one. Scriptures validates the fact that Christ died for us. He goes, show, he goes on. And that he was buried. That's a validation of the fact that he died. You say, why is that important? Well, there's a lot of people who don't believe that Christ died. They just think that he died to demonstrate the fact that Christ died in our lives. He died. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this is another point that we... I hope you all don't think I'm being so critical all the time, but really, sometimes, when we come around the Lord's table, some people are going to come with a sorrowful heart, remorse, and all of that kind of a thing. And they go over the dying of Christ. The Lord's Supper is not to celebrate the dying of Christ. The Lord's Supper is to celebrate the death of Christ. He died. He isn't dying. The sacrifice has been offered. It's finished. He sat down. It's done. Notice now, the burial validated his death. And that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Fulfillment of the Scriptures. Even validated. He was raised. On the third day. Now we have to connect that he's not, he was raised for us. To validate the fact, as we'll see in a moment, that God has accepted his death on our behalf. In other words, the penalty was paid. God says, right. I like what one of the theologians said in one studies I did years ago. He says, the resurrection was God's amen. Resurrection was God saying, Amen. To Christ, it is finished on the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. The Father says, amen. So be it. Validated by Scripture, but note also, also, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. His resurrection was validated by the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. Those are the elements of the gospel. Now, we're going to look at it and see why this is so important for us and what implications are there in this wonderful message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism 101. All right, let's go to the next slide a moment. Let me show you something here. Essentials, I call them. One, Christ died in our place as our substitute. We have to share this in sharing the gospel. We cannot leave this out. Believing that Jesus died in history, believing that he died for you, is salvation. You get that? You cannot leave out the aspect or the concept of substitution. Christ was buried, validating the fact that he did die. This is essential for belief that he was raised on the third day. In other words, he cannot be raised if he didn't die. You see, this is where a lot of people try to deny the resurrection by saying that Jesus didn't die. He just swooned. Or he died spiritually, not physically and all of that. No, Jesus died. He was buried, validating the fact that he died physically. And therefore, the next one here is that Christ was raised from the dead to validate the fact that he is the Son of God. Paul says that in Romans. 
declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And that the Father had accepted his death on our behalf. You see, this is what you have to place your faith in. This is what you have to believe. Jesus Christ, the God-man, died in your place on Calvary. Why did he have to die for you? Because you're a sinner. That's why. See, this is the need for the acknowledgement of sin comes in. If you don't believe that you're a sinner, you could never be. I don't know. The Bible says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isn't that right? God died. Who's holding up the universe? Now, I don't want to get into all of that. But I want to show you the mystery of this. All right? Because remember now, we have God the Father. Right? And God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit. God the Father did not die for us. God the Holy Spirit did not die for us. But God the Son did. You understand what I'm saying? You do some explain to me. See, that's the, that's the wonder, the awesome of, of our salvation. What happened there? That's the concept here. To believe that he was raised is history. To believe that he was raised for you is salvation. What I'm trying to bring across to you, I want us to understand that our salvation isn't just a little run-of-the-mill thing. It's wonderful. It's awesome. There's mystery there. We will never be able to understand the depths of God's salvation understand that because that drives us to the foot of the cross that drives us to the foot of the cross drives us to faith but let's move on here's a summary we must know about Christ if we are to believe in him doesn't that make sense we start there we must know about him we must believe in him that he died and was raised for us in order to call upon him we must know about him in order to believe in him. We must believe in him in order to call upon him. And we must call upon him if we are to be saved. Right? So let's go on. This is what Paul is arguing here. You must have a preacher in order to hear the gospel. So he goes on. How shall they hear without a preacher? Right? That's logical. To believe the gospel, one must hear the gospel. Because the gospel, and for the gospel to be heard, it must be preached or proclaimed. And to be preached or proclaimed, you must have a preacher, proclaimer, or teller of the gospel. Does that make sense? You've got to have some instrument for the message to be heard. That message must be sent by God. Now let's go on. He must be sent. He must be sent. How shall they preach unless they are sent? God is the only one who sends a teller of the gospel. I should say he sends the teller because sometimes man can send us as possible? Okay. God must be the one who does the sending. Right. Who are the sent ones? Now, we'd like to go back. That's them, from, that's them 11 over there. That's the ones who were sent. Let's look at it. John 20, 21, Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, in context, it's 11 disciples. But they are representative, I believe, of all believers are representing the nucleus. I like to call them the nucleus of the church. Remember in John 17 when Jesus was praying? He says, I'm not praying for these 11 here with me right now. But I'm praying for those who would believe in me through their message. Uh, through, their, through, through their message. And so we have these apostles as being the nucleus of the church. So we can universalize this historical truth or principle here and say that we have been sent by God. We've been sent by Jesus Christ. We've taken the baton from him as he left. John 17, 
Thou didst send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. In other words, we do not have to wait to be sent. We have already been sent. That's why the true rendering of Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is, as you are going into the world, which you have already been sent into, make disciples. Looking at the passage, is make disciples. How? By going into the world, by baptizing them, and by teaching them. That's how you make disciples. That's what he's saying here. Very important now. John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomsoever I send receives me. Now, how do you receive Christ? By receiving his message. The message that was made known. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And we receive the message of the gospel that came from Jesus Christ, our Lord, such as that. That's important. Here's the inclusion then. We are all sent to share the gospel. Now, do you believe that? You're sent. You don't have to wait for any call. The call has been given already, and Jesus has sent you. So we have no excuse to say, I ain't sent. I ain't going because I ain't sent. Yes, you've been sent. Jesus Christ, the head of the church himself, sent you. You are sent. God wants us to have beautiful feet. Now look at your feet. Now, you know, if you have beautiful feet, ask yourself, how often, when last, have I shared with you? Have I explained the gospel? That tells whether or not you have beautiful feet in front of God. That's what he's talking about. God wants you to have beautiful feet. Now notice here again how it's described. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good news? God says here in the gospel, the gospel of John, Ephesians 6. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, knowing, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Who's going to put those shoes on? That's right. Brother Frank, God's not going to, he's provided it for you. Yes, he's provided the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. Just as we provided all of those things, he's not going to use it for himself. He's not going to use them for us, so we've got to put them on, and we've got to use them. You've got to put on these shoes. How? Laid down. Accurately. So I ask you again, how's your feet? I'm not asking you to smell them. I'm just asking you to really die. Raised again. Validate the fact that you died for these your sins. Now, in doing that, you acknowledge that you're a sinner. Because that's why you need a Savior. And when you make that realization that you are a sinner and you are under the condemnation of God, it should cause you to call out. You see, that's why I say to you again, people are not saved when they come up and say, I want to receive Jesus Christ because I want my wife back. I want to get healthy, or I want, I, I, I want to get out of this financial problem, and I want, to, I want Jesus to help me to get out of my financial problem, and therefore I'm coming to give my life to Christ. No way! That doesn't save you. You've got to come with the conviction that you are a sinner under the condemnation of God, 
and that if you die in that state, you're going to hell forever. Realize that it was only God the Son who can save you, and in fact, he died in your place on Calvary and got raised him again, and now you call out, Lord, I believe you're God, and you died in my place. Face the 